Thank you, ladies. Great thought. Nice job. Go ahead and get in your Bible. If we would to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We have on Sunday nights been in a lengthy series on Bible doctrine, a year and a half at this point. Some doctrines that we have discussed are key doctrines, and we are commanded to earnestly contend for the faith, and they're a part of the faith. And we need to contend for those doctrines. Other doctrines we've talked about, we've studied, they're doctrines that help our stability, they help our thinking to be right, but they're not worth dying over, they're not even worth fighting over, they just add to our life when we understand them and embrace them. Uh, the last couple of weeks we have been talking about practical applications of a couple of Bible doctrines and Bible principles. Last Sunday night we talked about the biblical method of communication, the prominence of preaching the Word in the early church uh, by church leaders and by faithful witnesses. And though preaching the Word has in places today been replaced by teaching the positive-only aspects of the Bible, God has commanded spiritual leaders to be faithful to preach His Word, all of it, all the counsel of God. And though at times we don't like it, uh, it helps all of us to hear preaching like the Bible describes in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 where it talks about it having reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. And tonight, uh, like if the Lord tarries the next couple of Sunday nights, we are still going to continue in some practical applications of Bible doctrine. And the one we're going to talk about tonight is something good that's changed everything in much of American Christianity, uh, but not always for the better. You might describe rightly the season in which God has placed us, you might label it as worship wars among churches and believers. And the focus of much of American Christianity is today on what is called worship. A lot of people are being told, and many believe, that the purpose for which they were created was worship. Is that true? It's a good question. In American Christianity, many churches have a worship leader other than the pastor. On the platform stand worship teams whose goal is often, quote, the worship experience. Do churches providing a worship experience, is that, as that is commonly defined, is that a New Testament truth? Occasionally, and like some of you through some of the folks who are my friends on Facebook, I don't do a lot on it, but occasionally I'll see a picture of what is called on these posts, teen worship. And the lights are dim, the teens are dancing, they're lifting their hands to a rock band and a light show. Does that match the New Testament? Is that worship of Jehovah? And I know many of you aren't like me. Uh, I didn't get saved till I was 24. Honestly, for you, if you have a background like mine, those pictures look exactly like the bars and dance clubs that I was in before I was saved. Is that a good thing? Is worship even a kind of music? It's a good question. It's very common to drive down the street and see church signs that advertise traditional worship at one time and contemporary worship at another time. Is worship really about the music we like and want to offer God? 
Or is the first question not even supposed to be, what do I like? Is the first question really supposed to be, what does God seek? <laughs> Am I the other, only one ever wondered why the traditional worship service is always the early one and the contemporary one late? Have you noticed that? Do people who are most seasoned, are they not into contemporary worship? Are those into contemporary worship, are they unable to get out of bed on Sunday? Uh, has anybody ever asked these questions? Don't those thoughts go through your mind? Today, you can actually go to a Christian college and get an advanced degree in worship. <laughs> Is it really essential to have someone who's highly educated in, quote, worship for the Lord to be pleased with what we do when we assemble? There are a lot of purposes for the Bible. On Sunday morning, we've been focused on the main purpose of the Bible, which is for God to reveal himself to mankind. But you know, it is also one of the purposes of the Bible that we have a reset button. And so that people in every age can compare what they're doing and what's going on around them so that we can reset ourselves and the work of Christ to what was established for us in the New Testament. It's not surprising the Bible has a lot to say about worship. Worship is an important aspect of being a person with faith in God. And in typical fashion, with the way God has revealed what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ, uh, worship is discussed in principles. And it's discussed in principles on purpose because God didn't want the Bible to be a book for first century Jews. God wanted the Bible to be a book for people of every culture in every age from the time of Jesus forward. And everybody who's here tonight who wasn't drugged here by a parent, you want to worship in a way that pleases God. So as we begin to think about our issue tonight, I wonder if there are any ways in which we need to hit the reset button when it comes to our view and practice of Worship. If you're able to stand, if you would stand tonight, please, in honor of God, God's word. The title of my thought tonight is Worship the Lord in Spirit and in Truth. Worship the Lord in Spirit and in Truth. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus here says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah, that's Isaiah, prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Thank you, might be seated. Some of the most beautiful and tender statements and invitations that have ever been spoken came from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this particular text, we do not read beautiful and tender statements uh, or invitation coming from the mouth of our Lord. You see, Jesus spoke more than beautiful and tender statements and invitation. He also spoke the truth even when it was hard to hear. And you and I, just like people in the days of Jesus, we need someone to be honest and clear with us in addition to someone who is tender and gentle with us as well. 
And here Matthew records a conversation between Jesus and the religious Jews of his day, and he was very clear with them. He begins, firstly, by calling the religious people to whom he spoke hypocrites to their face. In verse 7, he says, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. By the way, hypocrisy is a different and much greater sin than someone who breaks the commandment of God. Sin in the Bible is defined as transgression of the commandment of God. See, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, None of us are ever going to live above sin, but all of us can live above the sin of hypocrisy. See, hypocrisy is to willfully and consistently make no effort to be in our home, our school, or workplace what we seem to be when we assemble as a follower of Jesus. Hypocrisy is very different from trying to do the right thing and failing to do so. A few words bring up stronger emotions than for someone to call us a hypocrite. And not surprising, the Pharisees were offended at what Jesus said to them in verse 12. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Not only did he call them hypocrites here, secondly, he told them their hearts were not right. In verse 8, he said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, you and I have no business doing this because you and I don't know anyone's heart but our own. In fact, the matter is, is though the Bible does teach, we're supposed to judge what we can see and hear by comparing it to what the Bible says. We struggle enough when anybody judges something in our life that they can see and hear. And we struggle even more if someone seems to think they know why we did what we did. In other words, they think they know our motivation. They think they know our heart. Few things bring stronger emotions than for someone to accuse us of having bad motives. I'm told that there was a man named Francis Felanon. He was a court preacher for King Louis XIV. And in the 17th century, on one Sunday, uh, the attendants arrived, he arrived at the chapel and the preacher uh, was there, but no one else. And Francis Felanon, the king, demanded, what's going on? And Felanon replied, I had published that you would not come to church today in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. I, I think most all of us understand that what God sees in us and knows is in us is much more important than what other people see and think in us. Not surprisingly, as we read in verse 12, uh, the Pharisees were offended that not only had Jesus called them hypocrites, he says, listen, your hearts are not right. Uh, By the way, not only were they offended, understand, Jesus did not back down in verse 13. He answered and said, Every plant which my Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Uh, Ever wonder why the Pharisees didn't like Jesus? Uh, Maybe we need to get rid of this idolatrous view of Jesus that everybody who actually saw him and heard him just loved what he did and had to say that is not true at all. 
But Jesus didn't stop there. Uh, he thirdly told them that their worship was in vain. In verse 9, in vain they do worship me. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, and certainly vain worship involves teaching man's commandments above God's commandments. You see, the part of American culture today that goes by the name Christian has become one where worship has become the focus of a lot of conversation and the focus of many churches. Listen, worship is a legitimate biblical issue. Worship is very important in the life of a Christian. But shouldn't worship be more than a kind of music? Jesus here actually uses some very strong language to describe what they call worship. He said their worship was in vain. That means worthless. That means of no value whatsoever. Few things bring up stronger emotions in anyone than for someone to tell them that what they did, that they call worship, was in vain. It was worthless. It has no value. And they were offended. Understand this worship that Jesus called vain. These religious Jews, they were gathered in the right name. They were gathered in the name of the God of the Bible. They were not gathered in the name of Caesar. They were not gathered in the name of one of the idolatrous gods of their day. They were gathered in the right name, and yet their worship was in vain. They were not only gathered in the right name, they were gathered in the right place. They were in the temple in the city of Jerusalem, the house of God, and yet their worship was vain. They were gathered in, around the right book. The Old Testament carefully preserved by Hebrew scribes, and yet their worship was vain. They were gathered with the right people. The Jews were the chosen people of God. In fact, people who were among the Jews who had genuine faith in Jehovah, they too went to the temple. They also went to the synagogue, Jesus, and every one of his disciples. They were faithful to all the temple services, faithful to their synagogue. It was the right place. It was the right book. It was the right people, and yet their worship was vain. They had the right attire on. They would have had on garments with a fringe of blue around the edge. They would have meticulously, as uh, law-keeping Jews, they would have not mixed two fabrics in their garments. They would have not had uh, cotton and wool mixed in the same. They would not have done that. They had the right clothing on, and yet their worship was vain. And though the, worship, the words of Jesus, they seem a bit harsh, to those who don't know Christ well or understands what he seeks, it is very clear that man does not get to decide what pleases God. Listen, the Jews were not assembled doing what they were doing to displease God. In their own mind, with whatever sincerity the best among them could muster, they thought they were worshiping God. But according to Jesus, they were not. And we struggle with this. You, you and I have a tendency to think that whatever pleases us also pleases God. We have a tendency to decide that anything done in God's name pleases God. We have a tendency to decide that anything done in a place called God's house pleases God. But for any worship to be called vain, uh, listen, that strikes us just contrary to us that anybody, even the Son of God, who would describe what they were doing to be vain worship, that really rubs us wrong. I know I speak for 
the people who are here tonight when I say, I'm not interested in having what I do three or four times a week described by Jesus as being in vain. In fact, I rather doubt if anybody who assembles once a week in Jesus' name would like what they do be described by him as being in vain. Certainly clear that it takes more than sincerity to have worship that pleases Jesus. It takes more than being in the right place with the right people upon the right book in the right name to have worship that pleases God. And I say again, worship is more than a kind of music or a kind of singing. Which brings up really the question that I want to spend time on tonight. What kind of worship is God looking for? What kind of worship does he accept? What kind of worship pleases God most? And with so much focus on what's called worship in American Christianity, there's some biblical things Uh, that might shock us. American Christianity is not Bible-focused for the most part. It's worship-focused. It may shock some people to know that 80 times in the New Testament, some form of the word worship is used, and many of them are not positive. They're negative. People worshiping the Antichrist, Satan trying to get Jesus to worship him, the false worship of the Samaritans, and in our text, the false worship of the Jews. Go in your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 24. If you believe the Bible's a reset button, say amen. I believe that. Been a lot of times I needed my life reset. Did you know that in the book of Acts, though there's a lot of information about starting and building churches, there are zero instances of worship associated with an assembly of believers. Zero. The word is used in the book of Acts 13 times, and the closest thing to being an assembly of believers is Acts 24, verse 11, as Paul speaks to the Roman governor Felix. Paul says here, because thou... May us understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for the worship. Uh, and they found me in the temple disputing, uh, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers." believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Notice Paul believed everything that was written then. Not everything that was written in the law and the prophets, like many people today. Paul believed what was written and was in his hands on that day, and that's the way he worshipped. By the way, when they found Paul and when he was arrested, uh, he was in the temple purified per a Jewish ceremony with four Jewish Christians getting ready to offer a blood sacrifice. He was taken by a mob and they were beating him to death when the Roman uh, soldiers came and they basically swept him away to begin in the Roman court system. And as Paul defends himself here, he uses worship to refer to what he did when he went into Jerusalem and in the temple. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not implying we don't worship when we assemble. I'm just saying the book of Acts doesn't mention it 
linked with believers assembling. That's the closest one right there. Did you know this, that in nine epistles to seven churches, only one time is the word worship associated with an assembly of believers? In that one instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, Paul is responding about how people would respond to prophecy, the preaching of the word, where it says, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Again, I'm not implying we don't worship when we assemble. We do. I'm saying there's no focus on worship in the New Testament epistles written to churches. Did you know that Peter and James and John, they didn't even use the word worship even one time in their six epistles? I mean, th think about this. We're, we're talking about, do we need a reset button? Uh, in 15 letters, nine by Paul and uh, six others by John and Peter and James, uh, that's the case. Imagine American Christian leaders today writing 15 letters of instruction to New Testament churches and not talking about worship. Did you know in four letters of three church letters, two to Pastor Timothy, one to Pastor Titus, one to Pastor Philemon, the word worship is never used one time. I mean, imagine a seasoned American pastor taking a young pastor aside like Paul would have done with uh, Timothy and Titus and instructing them on how to handle church business and never mentioning the word even one time. Maybe there's been a change of focus in American Christianity. Maybe we need the reset button. Again, I'm not implying we don't worship when we assemble, we do. I am saying there's no mention or focus on worship in the pastoral epistles. Did you know in the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses seven specific local assemblies of believers in Asia? Did you know as he addressed those seven assemblies, he used the worship one time and it had nothing to do with their assembly? Listen, Jesus addressed all kinds of different positives and negatives about those seven churches, uh, and yet he never mentioned worship in their assembly, even one time. Uh, again, I'm not implying we don't worship when we assemble. I believe we do. I, I'm asking a simple question. Have we lost focus? Do we need the reset button? Please hear me when I say God's purpose in creating you was not worship. God's purpose in creating you and me was relationship. God could have mentioned all kinds of things that he did in his relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said this, that they walked together in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve may have worshipped, they probably worshipped, but understand when God is describing the focus of what went on then, it was his relationship with them. And though we should worship, Jesus even made it clear the purpose of man was not for worship. He said these words in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. By the way, you can get online tonight and buy a t-shirt that says in the front, created to worship. You can buy it from several sources I checked this week. Now that phrase sounds spiritual. It sells a lot of shirts. But it isn't even true. 
And I ask you just a real simple question. How does the prominence of worship in what is called <laughs> and what is going on with so-called worship music, how does it line up with the New Testament? Do, do we need to look at the New Testament and hit the reset button? You see, the issue is not whether you and I love what is called worship and worship music. The issue is not should we worship, we should. The issue is not whether we assemble, we are worshiping, we are. The issue is not whether there will be worship of God in heaven. There will be, we're clearly told that. The issue is this. What is the place and prominence of worship in the New Testament and biblical churches in the Bible? That is our reset button. Is it really the, quote, worship experience that is the goal when we assemble? If you have anything to do with a music ministry and you're in one of these churches that are focused on worship, understand they will talk about the worship experience all the time. Is that from a New Testament model? It's an honest question. And the answer is no. What is God looking for when we assemble, what does he want from us as far as worship goes in the midst of so much false worship in our world? I don't want Jesus to describe something I do four times a week as being in vain. What kind of worship does God want? And before we get to that, understand as long as worship is about pleasing us, we'll never correctly answer the question, what kind of worship does God want? He decides what kind of worship he accepts and what he rejects. I'd like to offer God what he wants. I love God. As long as we think worship is about the kind of music we like best, we'll never correctly answer the question, what is God looking for in worship? As long as we think worship is about any late trend in American culture or American Christianity, listen, if we are trying to be, quote, culturally relevant in our worship, understand, we will never rightly answer the question, what is God looking for in worship? Worship is not about us. Worship is not about our culture. Worship is about God himself. It's about what pleases God. And let me just say, it is a terrible thing to reduce worship to a kind of music. Did you know Jesus clearly told us what kind of worship God wants? We've seen how this statement we're going to study in a moment, we've seen how the New Testament church applied what he said. What did he say? We've even seen something of his warning about worship that's in vain, but the great question still remains. Since worship is not about us or about any culture, what is God looking for in our worship? And rest assured, whatever the answer to that question is, it's good for us. Turn, please, in your Bible to John 4. So, Brother Waller, what are you nervous about? Well, you try this and see how nervous you get. Now, listen, I wouldn't offend or hurt you for the world. 
I would do anything and everything I could to try to help you. I want your life to be blessed. I want your relationship with our Creator and our Savior. I want it to be close. I want it to be real. What is God looking for? John chapter 14, verse 19. John, I'm sorry, John 4, 19. It says, The woman saith unto him, that's unto Jesus, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But by the way, before we go on, understand that even though this is not our subject, this is one of the places where if you have a new Bible that has taken out all the these and thous and thines, which are singular, and replace them all with ye, you, and yours, understand you lose the gist of what Jesus is talking about. See, the question is this. Is Jesus making fun of her personal worship? Or is Jesus condemning the Samaritan worship? We can answer that question with our Bible. Verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when instead of thee or thou, ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. Not thou worshipest, thou know not what. This was not personal. This was Jesus addressing the way the Samaritans worship. Now that's not our thought. Our thought is verse 33 or 23 and 24. Jesus here says, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. I've got that underlined in my Bible. That's a great statement. What is God looking for? God is looking for people who would worship Him. Verse 24, worship Him in spirit and truth. God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. See, we just read the biblical answer to our question. What kind of worship is the Lord our God looking for? There are clearly two aspects of it, not just one. The word worship here means to reverently bow down. That's the way the word is most commonly and most often used in the New Testament. Now at times, the word worship is used in a general way about how we handle the things of God and behave, and that's what we saw in Acts 24. But in the, the realest sense, the closest thing to worship is to reverently bow to Jesus Christ wherever we are. And in another sense, it refers to, refers to everything that we do rightly when we assemble in Christ's name. We're very clearly told here that worship should first be in spirit. Now when you and I read the word spirit in the Bible, it could be one of four things. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be an evil spirit, a fallen angel loyal to Lucifer. It could be the human spirit because a completed human being is in the image of our threefold creator, body, soul, and spirit. Or it could be what he's talking about here where it's referring to our attitude, our heart what's inside us. And when Jesus tells us the kind of worship that our 
Father is looking for, it must first be in spirit. Now in much of American church culture, worship refers to a kind of music. And the Bible worship is different than that, and though music and singing can be part of worship, worship is more than the motions of our body. It is more than the place we sit. It is more the words than the words we say or sing, even if they're true. Worship that pleases God must come from inside us. It must include our heart. It involves our attitude. It includes our motives, our sincerity. It involves a genuine desire to be here, to be involved in the things of God. If it's going to be worship when we please, and that pleases God, when you and I assemble, it must be in spirit. If we want the Lord to be pleased with our singing, then we must sing with our hearts unto the Lord. If we want our praying to be effective, then we must pray with our heart when it's time to pray, as if we're speaking to God. If we're going to worship in spirit, we must pay attention with our heart to what's being spoken by a preacher or a teacher or the song our special singer sings. To be in spirit, uh, we must thinking about huh, we must think about what God is saying in the message. What what is God saying to me as an individual? What is God teaching us about Himself? What what is God saying to our world? Uh, that's a part of our attitude. It's thinking about who Christ is and what He has done, not just for the world, but for each of us. To worship in spirit with our heart and attitude is to search our hearts at a time when we respond to what's been said. It is responding to the Holy Spirit. It is responding to the people around us. It is responding in a way from our inside, from our heart, with our attitude and sincerity. In the Spirit may or may not include external expressions. It may or may not have tears. It may or may not include many, many other things like saying amen or that's right or glory to God. Uh, I actually wish we did a little bit more about that around here. But I can't move your heart to do that. If it's going to be effective, it has nothing to do with what other people think about it. It's from your heart. It may or may not include lifting of the hands. That's not in the New Testament. By the way, lifting the hands doesn't always mean lifting the arms. I don't know of any place in the Bible that says lift your arms. A lot of places lift your hands. You know what I've noticed? I've been places where they had some really good music and then a speaker. And you know what I notice is when the music's going on, everybody's, yeah, oh, This preaching starts and they open the Bible. Does that seem right? Worship is not a style of music. It must have heart, sincerity, attitude. Let me ask you, what's your attitude tonight? What's your attitude in general when you assemble here? What's your spirit like tonight? Are, are, are you offering God the best heart you have available tonight? I, I hope you understand this when I say none of us always have the same heart available. 
Uh, Listen, a week ago, you and I could have been heavy laden with things and cares from work and family and sickness and all kinds of things, and God is not looking for our heart to equal what it was at some time in the past. He's looking for your spirit and mine and your heart and mine to be the best we're able to give Him when we're here. And that's the first part of worship that pleases God. But worship that pleases God is not just sincere, that is only half of the equation. Let's read verse 23 and 24 and find the other half. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is not just our sincerity, it is not just our heart, it is not just our attitude, we must have truth. See, God is not really so much interested in us being really excited over things that are not true. God wants our heart and our sincerity, and He also wants truth. Because worship that pleases Christ involves truth, we keep preaching and teaching the Scriptures. Because worship that Our Creator seeks involves truth. We sing songs with content rather than focusing on repetition. Because our Father is seeking this kind of worship, we teach sound doctrine to our children, the kids in our kids program, and our teenagers, listen, and our college students. We don't uh, don't entertain the kids so you and I can come in here and listen to the Bible preached and taught. Our teachers teach them the Bible and the things of God at a level they can understand. It's all on purpose because God wants our heart and He wants truth. And when you and I respond to the truth and apply the truth of Scriptures, as God opens our heart, then we have more and more opportunity to be the kind of worshiper our Father seeks. Sincerity that is devoid of truth, or as little truth, is vain worship. Nobody here wants that. Truth that is devoid of heart. It has little sincerity. Hey, listen, I'm not the only one who's come here before without my heart. I'm just here to simply say that's not what God is looking for. Do I believe we ought to have our body in the right spot? Yeah, that's a good start. But I also believe there needs to be heart and there needs to be truth to please God. I have good news for everybody here. Our Father is seeking believers who will worship Him like this. And if you're here tonight and you are trying to do this, God is looking for you. If you're here tonight and you're giving Christ the best heart you have available tonight, and you're applying His truth from Scripture as best as you understand it at this time, God is pleased with your worship, and He is pleased with you. None of us have perfection to offer. The best any of us can do is sincerity of heart and seeking to apply the truth as best as we understand it. And I say again, worship is much more than music and repetitive lyrics to which it has been relegated today. 
But to be honest with you, I am not concerned about other places that sing repetitive lyrics to rock music and have a shallow message and focus on worship. That's not my concern. What I am focused on is I'm focused on my relationship with God. And I want to offer God worship that pleases Him. I, I, hey, I love when you're pleased with me. I'm, I'm just a man. Just, just like you like it when other people are pleased with you. I, I like it. But more than that, I want my Father to look down on what I'm doing tonight when I assemble. And I want Him to be happy with and it's not complicated. Sincerity and truth. And if that's you, he's happy with you. God is looking for that. Will you choose to be someone who gives him that? Amen. You'd quietly stand.